0: Amen, you may be seated well, i invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter thirteen we'll be closing out this sermon series on Nehemiah We're looking at nehemiah thirteen verses twenty three through thirty one and the final few reforms that he makes uh, in israel in Jerusalem you 've probably heard the Slogan of the Reformed Church, uh, or one of the slogans that is, uh, that I've appreciated, and many have said and appreciated since it was first coined in a devotional book by a, a Dutch minister, Judocus van Lodenstein. Correct my pronunciation later. But in 1674, he said this: "Ecclesia reformata, simper reformanda." The Church reformed, always reforming. And we might assume that the main topic on his mind were, you know, crucial, critical doctrines, worship, even government of the church, something along those lines. But in his day, the the church was already thoroughly reformed in his area, in each of those areas, right, in each of those different spheres of doctrine, worship, and government. And Bob Godfrey has this to say about the slogan or about his purpose in saying this. Van Lodenstein, he says this, The great concern of ministers like Van Lodenstein was not the externals of religion, as absolutely important as they are, but rather the internal side of religion. Van Lodenstein was a reformed pietist and part of the Dutch Second Reformation. As such, his religious concerns were very similar to those of the English Puritans. They all believed that once the externals of religion had been carefully and faithfully reformed according to the word of God, the great need was for ministers to lead people to the true religion of the heart. And so we're finally at the end of our sermon series in Nehemiah after rebuilding the wall. We we saw how revival and reformation broke out as the people of Israel sought to know and apply God's word, and they began to practice things according to His law. After weeks of celebration and repentance, they just they renew their covenant commitment to God's word. But here, after Nehemiah finishes his first governorship, he returns uh, to serving the Persian king Artaxerxes and. And then he goes back after several years, we assume several years, it just says some time. Um, And in in those intervening years, it would seem like they had compromised. The people of Israel had compromised on every one of their vows that they had made previously. And so what we'll find and what we see here, even though it ends on this kind of realistic note, is that our, our failure to reform in thought, word, and deed leaves us vulnerable to the secularization and desecration of God's will? And that's what the people had fallen into. And when I say here reforming, it's reform in thought, word, and deed, reforming externally and internally. And so before we read this passage, let's ask God for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for this passage and, Lord, for this book. It's, it's been an encouragement to us in many ways to see the church unite around a project of rebuilding the walls, Lord, and to secure the city that you had promised them. And as they return and, and, and are now living among uh, one another, they recognize their need to renew their commitment to your word and to live according to its word Lord, to live according to your will. And yet we also see this inward wrestling, this struggle that they have with their flesh, the temptations of the world, the temptations of the devil that continually strike against their faith and strike against their, their, their doctrine and their practice. And we see them slip into compromise that once again needs accountability and correction. Lord, may we... Consider the importance of this passage for ourselves today. And if we need correction, if we need to be convicted of our own wayward hearts, Lord, I pray that we would receive that. Lord, ultimately, I pray that we would also be comforted by the truth of the gospel, that wherever we are in your word, whenever we open it, we want to understand what it's teaching us about you and, and redemptive history where it fits in the timeline that points us to Christ so that we might rightly understand him and his work. And Lord, trust in him and be comforted by that gospel assurance. I pray that you would be with us now. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Soften our hearts to the truth of your word. That you might be glorified in all of it. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Read with the uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 23. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women and one of the sons of Jehoiada the son of Eliashib the high priest was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite therefore I chased him from me remember them O my God because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline here, your bulletin, the first point is the secularization of marriage. Verses 23 through 27, the secularization of marriage. Now, Israelite, uh, well, Jews, it says here in verse 23, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. they had married women from enemy nations. These are the same nations. Two of them are the same nations, the Ammonites and Ashdodites, belonged to the the nation that was angry that Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls. Remember, they had enemies attacking them or or, uh, mocking them and working against them. They sought to thwart the project of rebuilding. And then you have the Moabites and the Ammonites. These were the offspring of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters in Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38. So these have been perpetual enemies from their... Existence, the inception of their existence, right? They were always at war with Israel. But as I've clarified in the past, Nehemiah wasn't upset that these marriages were mixed between two nations. There's other examples of a Moabite entering into the covenant community, and that's Ruth. She comes back from Moab with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and ends up marrying Boaz, so, there is an example of, of mixed marriages that are honoring to God. And that's those who would not just be foreigners, but those who would forsake their foreign gods and enter into the covenant community and adopt the God that they worshiped, right, to conform, uh, to, to reject their religion, the religion of their upbringing, and to adopt the God of Israel. So Nehemiah wasn't upset that these marriages were mixed between two nations. The problem was that they revealed a pluralistic approach to worship. These marriages involved women who remained committed to serving their foreign gods. And so mixed marriages was not the problem. Secular marriage was the problem. Raymond Brown says, Now that yesterday's enemies have become today's marriage partners, there's more than one way of destroying a city. They're still trying to destroy Jerusalem. They're still trying to get rid of their enemies. And so now they find by keeping them close in marriage, they might pursue that destruction. Well, this led to children who couldn't even speak Hebrew in verse 24, which implies that they had probably lost interest in the Hebrew scriptures. And so half of the children, it says, were only able to speak their mother's language. Now the mother would have been expected to stay home and train up these kids, and so it would, be, it would make sense. It's surprising that only half of them, frankly, uh, were only able to speak their mother's language. But it does say that half of them did, and, and the reality that reality threatened Israelite identity. And that alone began to secularize the family. As Derek Kidner puts it, a single generation's compromise could undo the work of centuries. Nehemiah's response was not subtle, it wasn't nuanced. He confronted them, cursed them, beat some of them, pulled out their hair, and then made them vow to quit their practice. I want to say, keep in mind that Nehemiah was the governor, not the priest. His role was one of physical power, whereas the priest possessed spiritual authority. It would be a mistake, I believe, for a pastor today, Mark Driscoll, to take a verse like this and use it to threaten physical violence against church members and fellow elders. It sounds strong and confident and just a direct correlation, but it's bad interpretation. The kind of reaction that, that Nehemiah Uh, displays here was outside of the scope of ezra's power and when you look at ezra the way he deals with the exact same problem instead of pulling out other people's hair he pulls out his own hair he falls to his knees he's fasting he's weeping for his people you can read that in ezra 9 3 the exact same problem in fact they both both nehemiah and ezra refer to the same um to the same passage in deuteronomy in their rejection right in their rejection of what was taking place and so he led Israel in corporate confession that's this is Ezra now he led Israel in corporate confession of their sin regarding marriage to foreign women and the people ended up responding with bitter weeping of their own and many of them separated from their wives according to Ezra 10 but now don't mishear me because I'm not suggesting that Ezra's reaction was superior to Nehemiah's I'm not suggesting that physical violence is always bad and that our approach to conflict should always and only be spiritual it depends upon your role Nehemiah had the authority of the government right? we don't want our police officers to pray for criminals we want them to arrest them we want them to keep us safe physically and so if they need to get violent because the criminal himself is getting violent, then so be it. They have the full support of Romans 13 behind them. Still, we listen, we read this and we think, but Nehemiah, is he at least overreacting to the situation? You know, just because you have the authority and the power to use it doesn't mean you should in every situation, that you should just wield it uh, in any way you choose. But before you accuse Nehemiah of being too rash and harsh with his power, you have to recognize what character he has displayed throughout this book. Right? He has been a man of character, of integrity, of incredible leadership. And here, at, at the very least, you have to acknowledge that his concern was for the glory of God and for the good of the people of God. And so I like what J.I. Packer says. He says, the assumptions so common today... That niceness is of the essence of goodness needs to be exploded. Nehemiah should not be criticized for thinking that there are more important things in life than being nice. I think he nails it. And so it was good for Nehemiah to do what he did. It doesn't necessarily mean you should do the same thing. But let's bring it back to the main idea here. A Christian's duty to marry only in the Lord. The Israelites had compromised their marriage vows. Nehemiah points to the example of King Solomon and very directly condemns it. Those many foreign wives that had caused him to sin. And then once again, he labels it, the actions of the people as a great evil. Uh, You can look back at verse seven and 17 where he used the same kind of language, calling their actions evil. And in need of reform of repentance so the very first principle I would say that we should take from this text is found in our standards the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 24 section 3 it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord and therefore such as profess the true reformed religion should not marry with infidels papists or other idolaters Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. Very clear, very direct. Marriage is to be a covenant between two believers. Equally yoked believers. So in other words, not, not someone who's simply professing Christ and living like a pagan, living like the world, but two repentant believers. Marriage is supposed to be centered around our faith. We cannot marry someone who refuses to participate in our religion. Now, I understand this can be complicated if someone comes to faith later on in their marriage. That's understandable, and the New Testament's quite clear about what you're to do. You're to remain married and to be an example. your spouse but a single believer should only pursue relationships that complement their walk with God only those who are thoroughly compromised in their doctrine and practice would ever consider anything less and so when Jesus arrived in the New Testament Gospels when he arrives marriage became an afterthought for his disciples calls them to himself, they follow him, and they were devoted to him and him alone. They didn't have time to care for a wife and children. Jesus, however, was thoroughly invested in marriage. He was devoted to the ultimate marriage to which all Christian marriages point. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. He is the true bridegroom around whom we center our lives. And so only pursue a marriage that contributes to your love for Christ. And if you're already married, this is for you too. Pursue a relationship with your spouse that keeps faith at the center. Think about this. What what's the point of being very particular about the spouse that you marry if you're not particularly committed to your faith? Right, so you, so you're, you're committed to only marrying in the Lord, and then once you've done that, it's like faith is just an afterthought in the marriage. All right, what's the point of that? Marriage is meant to serve your faith, not hinder it. So if you have a spouse, seek to serve God together, pray together, read the Bible together, partner with one another in ministry. Right, what holds your marriage together should not be a mystery to others. The secularization of marriage remains a a moral crisis around the world. In our nation, it's, it's clear, especially this month. Right? It's it's bigoted to hold to a biblical definition of marriage between one man and one woman, according to secular culture. In fact, it's bigoted to even define what a woman is nowadays and so i don't want to step any closer to that dumpster fire this morning but the church should be abundantly clear about these things and one of the primary ways that we preserve a right view of marriage is by modeling healthy god-centered marriages that raise children in the nurture and admonition of the lord and so my first prayer is that god would help us if the reformation of our hearts doesn't include the preservation of faith within our immediate family. Pray, fathers, pray for the grace and guidance of the Holy Spirit to seek to safeguard your home from the dangers that surround it. Unfortunately, in, in Israel, the secularization of marriage was compounded by the desecration of the priesthood, and these two are related. These two are related. So the next point in your outline is the desecration of the priesthood, verses 28 and 29. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Remember, he was one of the enemies that was against Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. Therefore, I chased him from me. So he chased away this priest who had married uh, desecrated the priesthood with foreign marriage. So he had married the son-in-law of Sanballat, or sorry, the, he was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So one of the, the challenges here in these, of these pluralistic marriages was that it involved the family of the high priest. Eliashib's grandson married the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. He's mentioned in chapter 2, 10 and 19. But Nehemiah chased him away for, for desecrating the priesthood in this way. And the point is this. How can you expect Israelites to only marry within the covenant when the priest can't remain pure? When the religious leadership is setting a poor example? And when we've considered Eliashib in the past, we would say he started out well. In chapter 3 verse 1 it says he's working alongside others to rebuild the wall there's nothing negative about him at that point but then we see he became compromised as a spiritual leader he offered space in the large chamber to tobiah in chapter 13 4 he had some either family relation to tobiah or was a close acquaintance with him but that That compromise, where he emptied out the the large chamber of the grain and the the goods that were being offered by the people, emptied that out to make space for Tobiah, ended up compromising the giving of grain for the priests in the very next section. And now we see that his grandson apparently marries for political gain. It seems likely that either Eliashib, probably both Eliashib and his son, were heavily involved, or at the very least, highly supportive of this marriage. And so Nehemiah had the authority to expel this priest from the community because he had broken a commandment that was for the whole community. And when Christians, even pastors, break the civil law, they too are subject to discipline by civil authorities. So the pastoral office Right, was was large it's largely lost its respectability among the secular society there have been so many pastors who have compromised their faith compromised their practice to in front of a watching world so that the office has become something of a mockery to the culture but think about the corruption that would quickly take over where leadership itself is wicked about how quickly destruction falls upon a church. Nehemiah's external reformation, the reformation that had begun among the people, it's clear that it hadn't reached a level of internal reformation in the hearts of the people. And even that was true even among the priesthood. There's a, a powerful episode in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. I've mentioned that this is my favorite novel And there's a passage where Jean Valjean, the main character, has this internal struggle that reaches an apex. It's early on in the book. And really, throughout the book, throughout the novel, Hugo is is tracing this internal struggle that Valjean has. And it's part of the book's brilliance. So before we get to the particular scene, I just wanna set the backstory here. As a a newly released convict, Valjean was unable to find anywhere to stay. No one would, you know, hotels wouldn't let him come or inns wouldn't let him pay for a room, for a bed to stay. Eventually, someone points him to a priest um, who not only provides Valjean a free room, but also fed him a meal that night. And when they go to bed, He's sleeping in the room right next to the priest. And Valjean wakes up, enters into the priest's room. um, And you're wondering what exactly Valjean is thinking and about to do as he's carrying a spike in his hand. But he goes over to uh, a chest and and breaks it open and steals the silverware and then flees. And the next day, Valjean is brought back to the priest by three uh, policemen. And immediately, the priest says, Ah, Valjean, you forgot to take the candlesticks that I gave you. They ought to sell for just as much money as the silverware. Now, after walking away and reflecting on his freedom, he, he sat down to rest. And there's this young chimney sweep who walks by, this young boy of about 12. He's singing, and he's playing with the few coins that he has to his name. And he's playing a game with them, throwing them up in the air, catching them on, in his hand. And the, the largest piece, the largest coin that he had was a 40 sou piece, probably roughly about $2 worth. Uh, but it had rolled into, uh, it rolls over to Valjean, who quickly stomps it with his foot. And the boy saw it, so he runs over, assuming that Valjean was going to hand him the coin back and uh he just ignores the boy the boy starts to try to move his foot and to get the coin he starts to cry and beg valjean to to let him have his coin and instead valjean stands up and threatens him and scares the boy off and he just stands there as if he's completely numb and indifferent to the world He just stands there for a while. Eventually, he he snaps out of that cold indifference. He picks up the coin and he starts to cry out for the boy, trying to find him and asking anyone who's passing by if they've seen this boy. And he can't find him. And after calling out and searching for some time, he ends up falling to his knees and and he weeps, it says, for the first time in 19 years. And he says this, he felt distinctly That the old priest's forgiveness was the greatest assault and the most deadly attack he had ever been rocked by that if he could resist such clemency his heart would be hardened once and for all that if he gave into it he would have to give up the hate that the actions of other men had filled his heart with for so many years and which he relished that this time he had to conquer or be conquered, and that the struggle, a colossal and decisive struggle, was now on between his own rottenness and the goodness of that man. Now Hugo sounds a lot like John Owen here. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. He acknowledges that this priest's single act of mercy led Valjean to an internal reformation that utterly changed him for the rest of his life. So leaders are held to a high standard as everyone else, but but they're expected to be exemplary in their adherence to the law. Corruption at the the highest level of, of the priesthood had impacted Israel under Nehemiah. And unfortunately, it doesn't appear that they ever fully recovered from their corruption. Religious leaders were the target of some of Jesus' strongest rebukes, rebukes, even as Matt prayed earlier. They were whitewashed tombs that might have looked physically good on the outside, but they were spiritually dead on the inside. And so Jesus routinely corrected their misunderstanding and pride. Regardless of their outward reformation, their hearts were unaffected, as he understood and so we see examples of these corrupt priests that need to be compared to Jesus, our great high priest, who was, there was nothing he was not only uncompromised in his life, but he was full of compassion, as we see in Victor Hugo's illustration. Jesus knew no sin, yet instead of offering up another lamb on behalf of his people, he offered up something infinitely more valuable, his own perfect, spotless life. The only reason any of us can ever experience true reformation is because we have a Savior who mercifully offered to take our guilt and our shame and to replace it with a righteous reputation that we could never earn. The desecration of a corrupt priesthood serves to highlight our need for a holy and compassionate high priest. And I think that's really the point here. That God calls us to nothing less than holistic reformation. And he provides nothing less than its full completion in his son. And the only solution to secularization and desecration is, is the heart reformation that's held out to us in the gospel. And the mercy and the grace of the gospel always leads us to the restoration of worship. And that's your last point. We looked at the secularization of marriage, the desecration of the priesthood, and then the restoration of worship. And I'm going to, this will be quick and short. I'll conclude with this. It's in verses 30 and 31. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times, and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. So after cleansing Israel from foreign marriages, Nehemiah reestablishes the proper people over the proper work within the temple. This is really maybe a summary of the entire chapter. He ensured the wood offering and the first fruits were on schedule. And then he concludes with another prayer. For God to remember him and again this is not a prayer to earn salvation but a prayer that reveals Nehemiah's gratitude and desire to please God so surely this these concluding notes in chapter 13 as the original audience read them would have been very convicting they knew how Nehemiah's reform failed Some probably responded to that by spiraling even into further rebellion, thinking it's hopeless. Even after God had provided so much for them and allowing them to rebuild the wall, to go through so much celebration and repentance, they still failed. But they should have responded with repentance. They should have responded with a hopeful longing for a Messiah, the only one who was capable of walking in perfect obedience. Christ alone upheld the duties of the law where every prophet, priest and king failed. He succeeded. He was always gentle with the humble. But the arrogant were condemned with fierce judgment throughout his ministry. And as a priesthood of believers, according to 1 Peter 2.19 and Revelation 5.10, We all serve as priests. We all stand on level ground before the cross. All of us stand in need of his forgiveness, and all of us are called to rest in his finished work. The finished work of Christ, our great high priest. And so I do ask for your prayer this coming week as we gather together as an assembly, a general assembly for our denomination, and we seek to preserve and protect the truth of the gospel. To preserve this church, to preserve our denomination. But ultimately, we want to be a witness to this great high priest who has a gospel message for this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would humble us by the example we read in this passage. Lord, it is easy to point the finger at others, easy to want to be the one in charge, the, the one like Nehemiah, rebuking others, and yet oftentimes we're the ones in need of rebuke. Lord, I pray that you would help us to receive that, And to learn to to hate our sin. To mourn over the areas in which we have compromised. Lord, to be committed to your kingdom mission. To look forward with hope to the new heavens and the new earth that are reserved and kept in heaven for us. That inheritance that awaits. Lord, may it... Increase our hope, may it increase our faith and give us strength to endure and persevere any persecution that might come. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. And so Lord, help us to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to know that it is the power of God for salvation. And to rest in that truth ourselves and then to call others especially those who are striving ceaselessly against their own wicked desires trying to tame them in their own flesh or even indulging in them we pray that they might meet a savior who is more than powerful to subdue their fight to bring them under submission to bring them to a place of humility at the cross where they might lay their own prideful ambitions down and receive his grace. Lord, may that comfort us even now and as we respond in singing and as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, Lord, may all of this be a means of grace that builds us up and encourages us in your love. So in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our psalm of response, O Lord, in wrath rebuke me not, psalm number 6.